0: I don't think we're dishonoring Jesus by thanking our team for pointing us to him today. I'm a bit of a wreck, too. It's been an amazingly special weekend, and you can't plan for that. Just sometimes it's just marked, you know, and God's good, and I love David Allen. I just love that man. You should just watch him back there worshiping God and God. love his whole family, but today, man, you honored the psalmist. You played with a stringed instrument to God's glory. Thank you, the whole team, for that. Well, today, we are going to see Jesus. We're going to see him in a way that uh, is a rare glimpse of his majesty, because that's where we are in our study of this amazing story, the Gospel of Mark. We're in the ninth chapter. And it's uh, an event known as the Transfiguration of Jesus. It's a chance to see him in a way that he has never otherwise seen during his time on earth. And it will help us see him in a way that uh, God intends all of us to understand him. Now, coming to this. We were in chapter 8 last week, and if you're just coming to the church and you've been new today or you're recently new, we're in our 13th week of our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we have been climbing up to the mountaintop, which we ascended to last week in chapter 8 when Len did a masterful job helping us piece together all the puzzle parts of answering that primary question that Mark had in mind when he wrote this story for the benefit of young Roman Christians in the first century to answer first and foremost, who is Jesus? And then secondly, what does it mean to follow him, that Jesus? so where we are at right now is at the top of that. This is the watershed part of the story, chapters 8 and 9. Everything builds up to this moment of declaration and understanding and discovery, and then everything moves from it. Just to review what happened last week, Jesus finally has that moment of declaration, that conversation, the defining the relationship conversation where he says to them who do the crowds say that I am and clearly they knew because this was a subject of great conversation and debate and they could easily tell him some some think you're John the Baptist come back from the dead which is kind of dumb because you know Jesus was alive before John the Baptist was killed but they didn't have the benefit of the 24 hour news cycle back then so maybe they just didn't have the timeline right some say you're moses or elijah one of the prophets come back from the dead i want you to remember that name elijah that they mentioned because actually he has a role to play in our our story today and then jesus turned to them and said but what about you who do you say that i am and peter got it right Throughout the Gospels, Peter has about a 50% accuracy rate with the stuff he says. But, But this one he gets right. You are the Messiah. And then I want you to pay very careful attention to the next verse, which we're going to review. Verse 31, it says this. Let's say it together. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must be rejected, killed, and rise again. Now it may surprise you to know that this is the very first time those ideas are spoken of in the Gospel of Mark. And I want you to notice that what, John, what Mark says is, is that he then began to teach this. So in other words, this moment of declaration and understanding is what opens up the possibility for Jesus to now teach his real purpose for coming. Up until this, Jesus' ministry and his message we saw way back in our first week in chapter 1 when it said he went about the villages and towns preaching that the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And his message was about the coming of the kingdom of God through his incarnation, his coming to this world. But now that they've clearly seen That you are the Messiah. Now it's time for Jesus to help them understand its implications. And so that's where we go from here. But secondly, I want you to look at this verse. And I want you to pay very careful attention to the term Jesus uses for himself in Mark chapter 8. What term is that? Son of man. Keep note of that. Son of Man speaks to Jesus' humanity. It's a phrase he uses quite often. But it also is an Old Testament phrase referring to the Messiah who would be sent to be the Savior of Israel. So the Son of Man speaks about that aspect of Jesus that was his humanity. And this is what I want you to understand. Even though... At this point, Peter and probably the rest of the disciples are correct about what they've declared about Jesus. The answer is not complete. He is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. But now we're going to get the whole answer. And in order for that to happen, people aren't going to come up with it. God has to show up. He has to speak into it. And let us know something about Jesus that we would never figure out on our own. And so he's going to declare it. And that's what the transfiguration is about. It's an amazing story. It's page 714 in the Pew Bibles. And so why don't you take out a Bible and turn to it. And we're going to read the first 13 verses together. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. And now we're about to see that promise fulfilled. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could Bleached them and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus Peter said to Jesus rabbi it is good for us to be here let us put up three shelters one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah he did not know what to say they were so frightened then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud this is my son whom I love listen to him suddenly when they looked around they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus and as they were coming down the mountain Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead and they kept the matter to themselves but we were puzzled and discussed what this rising from the dead is all about. That's the, the PT version, the Pastor Tom translation. <laughs> and they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Jesus is referring to John the Baptist, the forerunner who would come in the spirit of Elijah, and who would come before and point the way uh, to the coming of Messiah. What an amazing story. And so we're going to take it apart, and we're going to see what God the Father has to say in answer to that primary question, who is Jesus? Three things happen in the transfiguration. The first is that Christ's divine nature, his glory is revealed. We'll explore that. Secondly, two Old Testament characters show up sort of like a, a check-in from heaven. How you doing? You know? How are things going now that we're going? Sort of a heavenly check-in. And they have a role to play. And then finally God himself shows up. That cloud that comes is the very familiar Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. The pillar of fire and smoke that indicated the physical presence of God. And then God's voice speaks. So let's take these three things apart and unfold what it is Jesus or what it is God is declaring about who Jesus is. The first thing we see in verses two and three, let's let's say this together. Jesus was transfigured before them, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. That's working class language, that's what that is right there. You have to remember, this is Peter telling this story to Mark. Mark was not an eyewitness to these events, so. He's, I can picture this, towards Peter's old age in Rome, some brief time before Peter's to be martyred, they're sitting down and Peter's remembering back. Now, Peter was a working man. He was a fisherman. When the Jewish men were divided in their teen years between those who would take a trade and those who would study the law, which would be their version of a higher education, those who would study the law and the rabbinic tradition, Peter followed the track, the honorable track, of, of, a, of a laborer, of a, of a skilled laborer. He was a fisherman. And so his language is that. All throughout, by the way, we can't tell because, you know, the translation is, is well done throughout the Bible, but, but Peter's language, his Greek, is more working class. Maybe you'd have a Boston accent, you know, one of those... They're like working class neighborhoods. And so when he looked back at this, the best way he could describe it is, bleach couldn't make it this white. It was so white. That was his way of looking at it. So what is it that takes place here? What happens for this brief moment in time is what we sing about in our Christmas carol, that which is veiled in flesh, the Godhead we can now see for this brief moment in time god the father removes the human veil of flesh that allows jesus to be found in appearance as a man as paul says in philippians 2 and his full glory is revealed i heard one commentator say it's a preview of coming attractions i like that Because even Jesus spoke about a time when the whole world, all of creation, would see Him in this very way when He said, when the Son of Man comes in all of His glory. For this moment, these three human beings get a glimpse of it. And what is it we're to see about Jesus? Who is Jesus? He is not simply Son of Man. He is God in the flesh. As I heard one preacher put it, he is deity dressed in a body. We wouldn't come up with that idea. God had to remind us. God had to let us know. God had to reveal it. It's a beautiful thing. John would look back at this experience being one of the three. And when he wrote his story about Jesus he would lay claim to its accuracy in the very first chapter when he says, The Word, who is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt for a while among us. And we beheld His glory as that of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John's speaking to this event. He's saying, I'm a witness to who this being this divine being was who took on flesh and walked among us secondly Moses and Elijah show up Now that's interesting why those two characters of all the characters that could have been sent from heaven for a visit by the way it's interesting that they're talking to him I, I like to think of the fact that it's not like some new thing because we know that Jesus was with the father he was one with the Father, John would say. He, was a, he is God the Son. And so no doubt, Moses and Elijah had already talked to the Son, were aware. And so this was sort of a reunion of sorts. But why these two? It's interesting. Let me just double back. I, I forgot something that I think is worth pointing out about the, about the, the actual revealing of the divinity of God. So Peter says uh, it was like, like clothes couldn't be bleached so white. Matthew says his face shone like the sun. That's the higher language version of it. But it was a glorious thing. And then talking to Moses and Elijah. Well, here are several reasons why I believe these two characters show up at this moment. Moses and Elijah represent together the entire Old Testament scriptures, which is referred to in this day and age as the law and the prophets. Moses was the bringer of the law. He was the one to whom God gave the law. And so he represents all of that. Elijah, the more popular in this day and in the messianic prophecies of all the prophets, represents all the prophets in Scripture both of which wrote extensively in a way that pointed to Messiah. In fact, Jesus said that. There's a point when Jesus is debating with um, the, the Pharisees, and he actually says to them, your debate isn't with me, your argument is with Moses, because Moses wrote about me. You may remember, uh, after Jesus rose from the dead, he is uh, walking With two uh, people that had been in Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus, and they knew about the death and had heard about this resurrection, and they were puzzling it together, and Jesus shows up. They don't know it's Jesus, and they're talking to him about it. And scripture records that Jesus said, Don't you know that this was all that God had always planned? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Christ showed them all that had been written about him. So the implication is clear. They represent all that had been written and foreshadowed about Jesus. Moses had his own mountain experience with God. He was taken up into a mountain where he heard the voice of God and where the Shekinah glory, that same smoke and fire, covered the mountain. And when he came down, Scripture records, he was radiant But Moses was radiant because he had been in God's presence and he kind of caught some of that glory externally. He was not transfigured. Jesus was transfigured, which means the glory came from within. His nature was revealed. Whereas Moses reflected God's nature, having been in his presence. So Moses represents that. Moses represents the old covenant the 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 forgiveness of sins that was made possible through the sacrificial system the blood of a lamb moses was the one who brought about the first exodus the children of israel delivered from slavery by the blood of the lamb that was spread over the doorposts in the very first passover you may know the story children of Israel sacrifice a lamb. They spread the blood over their doorposts. The angel of judgment passes over Egypt. And when he sees the blood on the doorposts, he passes over that home. It's not to say that those homes didn't deserve judgment in their own way, but because they were covered by the blood, what they received was grace. And because of that, the children of Israel exodus they are freed from their slavery who is jesus jesus is the bringer of the new covenant he is the one to bring about a new exodus by the blood of the true lamb of god who would take away the sins of the world and our exodus would be for all mankind all who would come and our liberty would be from imprisonment to sin and death once and for all. Elijah represents the, the messianic tradition of prophecy. In fact, as we said earlier, the one who would come as the forerunner would have the spirit of Elijah symbolically, metaphorically be Elijah. He represents all of those things. And so this is what we see about Jesus. It's interesting that when it's all said and done, as soon as the next event happens, God speaks. Moses and Elijah disappear. And it says, suddenly they looked around and they no longer saw anyone except Jesus. That's not just a transition in the story. That's an exclamation point. Because from this point on, we don't need to look to anyone. But Jesus, Moses and Elijah and that work are done. They're fulfilled. Jesus alone now is what we need and what will bring about this exodus, this freedom from sin and death. That's amazing. But it doesn't touch what happens next. Because what happens next is a cloud comes, and as I said, it's the Shekinah glory. In other words, a clear representation that God the Father is showing up. These are one of those rare moments when we see multiple persons of the Godhead present simultaneously. And this is what he says. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. What does the Father want to make sure that we understand without any debate without any discussion drop the mic this is the end of it all what is it that only the father can declare to us because we would never see it on our own that this Messiah this Jesus is not just the son of man he is the divine one and only beloved son of God And so here we are with this amazing picture We see fully the Jesus that Mark wants us to see. He is man. He is fully man so that he could pay for the sins of the world so that he could die as a man on the cross, but he is fully God. He is the one and unique God-man, Jesus, Messiah, Savior, Jesus, Lord, God so we're left saying, well, what am I supposed to do with this? How are we to respond to this? Well, I could think of any number of ways that we could respond to this. I could think that we should worship him. We should honor him. We should obey him. We should serve him. But God has a different thing in mind. How do we respond to this revelation of Jesus? This is what the Father says to you. Listen to him. Hmm. Interesting thought. Maybe if we don't get this right, then we can't respond any other way correctly. Maybe there's no worshiping, no honoring, no following, no obeying, no serving if we don't honestly heed the words of the Heavenly Father who says, this is my son who I love, it starts with you listening to him. You see, because I think that is our biggest problem. And we see that in the the subplot of Peter himself in this. So let's just follow Peter's little track through chapters 8 and chapter 9. And let's remember that Peter is telling this to Mark. So he's being surprisingly honest, right? He's being honest about himself at this period of time. He's an old man. He's followed that track as a Hebrew man, a follower of Jesus. He's become what the Hebrew word for man, ish, means. Ish is the Hebrew word for an elder, a mature, wiser man. He's looking at his youthful Peter on the mountain. And so let's just track Peter's little story here. Peter gets it right about Jesus being the Messiah. That's wonderful. And then what did we see Jesus says? Put that back up on the screen. As soon as Peter gets that answer right, Jesus begins to teach that the Son of Man will be rejected, killed, and rise again. And what's the next thing Peter does in chapter 8? Well, he doesn't like that. And so he takes Jesus aside, and Mark records that he begins to rebuke him. Now before you get too upset about Peter for doing this to our Lord, let's remember this is before the transfiguration, and this is where scholars are led to think that Peter may have been older than Jesus. He may have been a senior to Jesus, and it would have been perfectly normal for an older Jewish man to think in terms of taking this younger person, even if he is like the promised Messiah, he's still a young man. I'm going to take him under my wings a little bit. He's got some things right, but clearly this isn't it. You see? And so the next thing that happens is God rebukes Peter. So in, in Matthew 16, uh, the same encounter, uh, the first thing they Jesus does is bless Peter blessed are you Simon Peter and he gives him his name he moves from Simon to becoming Peter so he blesses them and then the next turn he says get behind me Satan because now you're speaking for the enemy of the things of God so he's put in his place and then this is what Jesus says as a result to all of the disciples let's say this together whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves And take up their cross and follow me, for whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So here is what I think the problem is with Peter at this point. First of all, he clearly doesn't get the whole picture of who Jesus is. He's right about what he said so far, but he's missing the fuller picture. And so when he hears the implications of who Jesus is, he's not buying it. He's not listening. He's got his own ideas of what Messiah will be. And so when Messiah comes and when it's clear that that's who it is, and then Messiah starts putting out a different plan than his own, he's got a problem with that. Which is, I think, exactly our problem most of us, or all of us at some point in our life It's listening to what Jesus says rather than trying to get Jesus to listen to what we have to say. Our plan. We like the idea of Jesus being our Savior. But we want to set the terms. Jesus' path was for him to die. Go back to that verse. He was going to die, but how does it end? I'm going to rise again. It has a good ending but it has a very unpleasant track to get there. Jesus doubles down. This is my life, so what does it mean to follow me? It means the same for you. Notice at the end of this, he offers true life. Life in God, life that we were meant for. But what's the path to get there? Entirely unpleasant. Not my plan. The next place we see Peter is on the mountain and right in the middle of this verse 5 of chapter 9 we're just going to read this in the text Peter said to Jesus Rabbi this is just before God shows up God the Father so you know you got the whole scene you got Moses and Elijah and they're talking to each other and then uh, peter said to jesus rabbi it's good for us to be here let us put up three shelters one for you one for moses and one for elijah now we could speculate what peter was thinking at the time right in fact there's whole sermons and discussions about that but that's not mark's point here mark's point is in the next verse verse 6 little parentheses where he says he did not know what to say because they were so frightened. So I'm picturing, remember, Peter's telling this story. Mark's just repeating it. So I'm picturing Peter standing there, maybe, or sitting there, telling Mark the story, and maybe, as I see it, he's caught up in remembering, seeing Jesus in all of his glory. Maybe he's paused, just remembering the beauty of that. And maybe Mark says to him, so what did you say? Peter goes, Pfft. I said, let's build some houses. And then he laughs at himself and he goes, I didn't know what to say. I was scared out of my sandals. But of course that didn't keep Peter from talking anyway. And that's really the point. Whatever Peter had in mind, it wasn't what God had in mind. That's all you need to know here. And so God, I believe, I'd like to suggest that God may have been directing his comments, first and foremost, right at Peter (laughs) when he said to him, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Because what Peter wanted to do is what all of us want to do. He wanted to reach to control the situation. Even Jesus needed to be controlled to fit into his plans, his priorities, his, his expectations. And the problem is that path may give you what you think you need or want in the long in the short term but it will not lead you to life what does it mean to listen to jesus well he tells us to listen to jesus is to hear him tell you personally my path is the cross i'm not here to set the world right by establishing my reign i want to reign in your life and the way i'm going to do that is i'm going to die for you it's an unpleasant path in fact i'm going to ask god if there's any other way the closer it comes but i'm going to take that path because that's why i'm here it's why i am the god man i'm going to take that path And then at the end of it, there's gonna be a resurrection and not only I will live, but all who turn to me by grace will live. And what does it mean to follow me? It's a cross for you too. At the end is life. But getting there is not gonna be pleasant. Because everything about you is to not do what you need to do most, which is die to your ambitions, to die to your plans, your need to control these things. Some of you are mad at Jesus. You still keep coming to church. God bless you, but you know you're mad at him. I'm going to tell you something. It's not his fault. It's your faulty expectations. Jesus is saying to you, listen to me. There is a path to life but that life means dying to your old life. Your cross won't save you, but your cross will put to death that in you which keeps you from following Christ into life. His cross saves us. This is the message. This is where we're meant to be. This is the journey now we are going to take together through the remainder of this gospel as we follow Jesus through his rejection, through his arrest, through his, bur- through his brutal treatment, through the cross, into the empty tomb, and that sense when all hope was lost, only in the end to have him burst forth in life and for us to live with him forever. It's magnificent. But if we're going to get there, you need to hear the words of Christ of Christ's heavenly Father. You need to listen to him. You may be like Peter. You may put words coming out of your mouth before your brain gets in gear. You may be just like Peter. You may be somebody who doesn't say anything until it's well planned, and you have all sorts of arguments and debates in your head, some of which never get shared. But all of us want control. But only Jesus deserves having that control. And only surrendering ourselves to his control leads us to that life, that exodus from our prison of sin and death into life eternal. Best advice I could give all of you today, in light of this Jesus, is simply those three words listen to him. I'm going to pray, <laughs> and we have one thing we're going to do. The worship team is going to come up, as, and I, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to just thank the Lord for this amazing passage, and then we're going to respond in what I think will be a beautiful way. We're going to honor this Jesus that God the Father spared nothing to reveal to us through his word. And we're going to honor him by saying together an ancient hymn that's actually in the Bible about Jesus. It's in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's a segment of Scripture that's a hymn that I believe the first century Christians would sing together. We'll say it together. We call that the incomparable Christ. I'm going to pray, and then when I'm done, You're going to stand with me. We're going to say this hymn to the glory of Jesus, and then we're going to worship him in song. All right? So just for a moment now, would you bow in prayer? And before I pray to the Father on all of our behalf, would you just sit as though God has given you this revelation all to yourself about who his son is? Would you just sit in prayer and hear him say to you, listen to my son, and just for a moment ask the question, what is God saying to me? I'm listening. What is it that God wants me to hear in light of who Jesus is? Lord, if we're really hearing your voice right now all around this room, We are dying to ourselves. Some of us for the first time, surrendering control to this magnificent, this glorious, this incomparable Christ, whose blood shed on the cross delivers us from our sin, our death. And for others of us who have been on this journey 10 years as Malia and others, We're dying again so that we might live through you the life that is truly life, the life that is eternal, the life we were meant for. We honor Jesus. We lift him high as our Savior, but as our great God and Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.